Hello, and welcome to the Primordial Soup Pot. I am Rustin Perret, and I'm here with my co-host. Hey, I'm Aaron Johnson. This is a podcast about ecology and evolution, and each of us has prepared a topic. Our overarching theme this week is islands, as we decided last week. So, Aaron, you went first last time, did you not? Yeah, I did. I talked about the flapworms. Oh, yeah, that's right. Those weird hermaphrodites. Double-barreled dick shivs. <laughs> as God intended it. <laughs> anyway, so that means that I go first this week. So before we start, how did you find the research for this episode? I had known what I was going to do. Yeah, it's something I've been sitting on. But like islands were so broad that you'd never struggle to find a cool topic. Islands are great for evolution. They are. I honestly like had trouble picking which island. So I just picked a more general topic that I think is really cool and is relevant to the area in which we live. Oh, how about that? Generally, when we think about islands, usually the first thing that comes to mind is like some tiny spit of land that exists in the middle of the ocean with like palm trees and crashing waves. And there's some random dude sitting on the beach drinking a Corona, you know, you get the picture, right? You know, this is the kind of place that, you know, a billionaire is going to buy and show up and find Tom Hanks talking to a volleyball. However, some of the most important islands are actually very close to shore. These are the barrier islands. This is my topic for this week. So I'm going to be talking about barrier islands that kind of shelter coastlines all along the eastern United States into the Gulf of Mexico and are found throughout the world, really. They're found on every continent except Antarctica, but there is a disproportionate amount of them along the eastern coast of North America and bordering the Gulf of Mexico, as I mentioned earlier, right along the Atlantic Ocean. Generally, they all have the same kind of basic structure. So there's the ocean. Right next to the ocean, you have your beach, which is just like a flat, sandy area that most of us are pretty familiar with. Aaron wasn't until a couple of years ago. Yeah, I hadn't been to the beach in like 15 years. Yeah, that was honestly shocking to me. Parents don't like it. They don't want to go there. I guess, but you didn't have like any other relatives who planned a beach trip? Oh, yeah. No, they go. But they go somewhere real expensive, and my dad was not going to pay for that. They went to like the Dominican Republic, and there's no way in hell my dad was going to pay for my vacation that he wouldn't even attend himself. I don't blame them, though. I mean, the flight alone was probably $1,000. Oh, I'm not saying it wouldn't have been expensive, but I figure you, just, you live your life in Maryland. You wind up on the beach even by accident. No, we went to the bay. I guess that's a compromise. No, it's not. We didn't swim in it. You don't really want to. It's just jellyfish. Yeah, exactly. No, you don't want the, You don't want to do that. Anyway, so there's a beach, which Aaron knows about now. And then pretty much all of these barrier islands will have a large dune. And then on top of the dune, there'll be some grasses growing to stabilize it. This is pretty consistent, pretty much up and down the Atlantic coast. And then behind the dune, you have a marshy area. And depending on how wide the barrier island is, you might also have some scrubland or some trees growing there as well. And then behind that marsh, you have a lagoon then lies between the barrier island and the actual mainland. These islands, in addition to being really prevalent along the Atlantic coast, are really important to the ecology of these areas for a variety of reasons. Number one being that they provide protection from hurricanes and tropical storms, which will routinely batter these coastlines. Pretty much all the hurricanes that are notable or are very powerful. You think about Hurricane Katrina, you think about all these other storms that have come through there. They all hit areas that are protected by barrier islands, at least historically. And that's why you don't build things on barrier islands. Exactly. We'll get to that, though. Yeah, I knew that had to come up at some point. Yeah, yeah, because there's there's some pretty crazy shit that we've done when we've built on barrier islands, you know, before we really understood how they work. But... These islands will protect the mainland, so any storm surge or any kind of large waves or anything like that that'll batter a coastline is instead battering the barrier island, which in and of itself is impermanent. But without the islands, they would just batter the coastline itself uh, and the, the actual continent, and so they basically act, I, I like to think of them as like a club bouncer to the mainland. Like anything coming in from the ocean just can't get through the island or has to go through the island to actually get to the mainland. Do you remember uh, 
junior or senior year, there was the one guy in a LQ, and he was acting as a bouncer for a party that had like nine people in it. I do not remember that at all. Um, so anyway, but yeah, that, that's kind of the role of these barrier islands is that they protect the coastlines, uh, which is a really important role, especially in an area that gets battered by hurricanes all the time is anyone who lives in Florida, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina will tell you. The second important thing is that they support these salt marsh communities behind them, which are incredibly productive. They don't have a very high species diversity because it's pretty much all salt marsh cordgrass that exists behind these barrier islands in these salt marshes, but it's still an incredibly valuable habitat for a variety of animals, including migratory birds, which we've already talked about on the show. And migrating shorebirds and songbirds along the Atlantic flyway will use these lagoons and islands as stopover points, without which they would struggle to make the journey or fail altogether. The lagoons also support diverse communities of fish and invertebrates that live in this kind of intertidal zone between the ocean and the mainland. So it's a pretty unique kind of habitat setup behind these barrier islands because they're protected. And so it tends to be more stable and very productive overall as an ecosystem. Third, the actual oceanside part of the islands provides a really valuable breeding habitat for certain animals. Um, the, ha- the habitat there is super harsh. Like if you think about it, I mean, now that you've finally been there, it's salty, it's sandy, it's sun-baked or wave-battered. And so it's relatively free from predators because there's just not enough that, that can survive there to support large predatory animals. Like you don't, outside of Ocean City, you really don't see a lot of raccoons on the beach. You see plenty of them in Ocean City, but that's because Ocean City is trash. Ocean City is a shithole. It really is. Don't go there. Do not go there. Absolutely not. There are nicer beaches that are like 30 minutes up the road in Delaware. Just trust us. I've been going to Ocean City my whole life. and I've been going there for two years, and I can tell you it's still not worth it. Okay, I don't have the, to go my whole life. The first year we were in Delaware, and that be- the beach itself was fine. We just kept going into Ocean City because people actually wanted to like go to bars and stuff. There was a shortage of... Uh bars where we were at but where we were at it was only like it was half a mile wide that was so narrow yeah 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 that's the other thing about these barrier islands is that they're very very thin yeah they're just not wide they're very long and thin it's relatively free from predators a lot of sea turtle species um, especially the loggerhead sea turtle in the southeastern united states which is listed as an endangered species use the barrier islands as breeding habitat because of the beaches Uh, Another species that's really important that uses this area as a breeding habitat are piping plovers. They'll nest on the beaches as as well. The piping plovers, I know this because I'm a bird guy, um, they actually lay eggs that are perfectly camouflaged to look like rocks. Any predator will just overlook them completely. And they also do the thing that a lot of birds do where if a predator comes along, they'll pretend to have a broken wing and start running away. So the predator chases them and completely overlooks the nest, especially when it's as well camouflaged as their nests are. What predators do you have to worry about? Just other birds? Yeah, they have to worry. You know, they worry about gulls. Yeah, mainly just gulls. The occasional uh, bird of prey might come after them, but that's pretty much it. But when humans use these beaches, humans don't even know that they're running over their nests. So if you ever go to the Atlantic coast or around certain national seashores, During the summer, they'll actually rope off part of the beach as piping plover breeding habitat because they're listed as an endangered species. And because when people use those beaches, they repeatedly trample on their nests without even knowing it. They just see this bird running away with a broken wing and they're like, this rock is leaking. How weird is that? Yeah, there's all kinds of yellow shit coming out of this rock. What the fuck? Look at all these weird rocks I found. I've gathered like 50 around this spot. I can just crush them so easily in my hands. Look at it. I can't stop myself. It's so fun. Yeah, I don't I don't know why these rocks around here are just terrible. <laughs> One guy just single-handedly eradicates an entire population of birds. Honestly, yeah, that that's basically what was happening is basically crowded out by humans. That re, you know, reinforces my point that this is really valuable breeding habitat for a lot of species. But as I was alluding to earlier, what makes these islands so remarkable 
is that unlike a lot of other islands that are have like are based in are made out of rock and are very stable and we pretty much know where they are barrier islands are by their nature impermanent so they will move from place to place whether seaward or landward or even disappearing entirely sometimes depending on various factors including sea level sediment type sediment load things like that you know even weather wave movement and currents can also push these islands around so because these islands aren't they're basically just made up of deposited sediment that comes from waves that crash along the shore. That's pretty much it. There's no continental plate there because where the barrier islands are, the continental plate has started to already slope down um, before it eventually drops off into the abyssal plain. So every time you turn around and look back, the barrier island will actually get a little bit closer to you. (laughs) Yes, it's following you very slowly (laughs) you have to put little markers to track it otherwise you wouldn't notice yeah yeah they're really sneaky about that you don't notice it right away but actually like that that is actually like a legitimate phenomenon is that these islands do move slowly and you really don't notice it until you see pictures of like where the island was in 1955 and now and where it is now and you see a noticeable difference between those two you know, maps. The other thing that happens too is that sometimes powerful storms will open up new inlets entirely between barrier islands. So they will literally split a barrier island the fucking half. Um, This happens all the time. We back. Yeah, I really ought to get a sign to put up on my door saying I'm recording. Almost like every episode, it happens to at least one of us. Today, my mom couldn't find the banana peppers. Oh, no. <laughs> um, all right. And so we're back. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron had to leave to go collect some banana peppers, apparently. They're very elusive. They really are. They're so vibrantly chartreuse that sometimes they just look invisible they're like barrier islands actually every time you turn around they like sneak away a little bit more yeah they're really hard to pin down (laughs) as numerous building companies have learned throughout decades of trying to build on barrier islands they're the banana peppers of islands really (laughs) that's the one thing to take away from this they're even kind of shaped the same way too they're very long and thin Oh, these were sliced banana peppers. Oh, so they're even longer and thinner. Exactly. Damn, wow. This is very appropriate. The interruption was perfect. Anyway, so much like a knife slicing through a banana pepper, (laughs) sometimes these storms will open up, uh, will basically split a barrier island in half, and they'll open up new inlets, new basically new paths into the ocean. So if you've ever been to barrier islands along the east coast, whether they're in the Outer Banks or whether they're um, along the, Mar- the Delmarva Peninsula near Aaron and I, you know, you'll notice that sometimes you have to build a bridge between islands, whether it's, a, um, you know, the barrier between Ocean City and Assateague in Maryland or whether it's uh, Oregon Inlet in North Carolina. Basically, this happens all the time when these large storms roll through and we have a habit of uh, stabilizing the shorelines as soon as these inlets open up. So we'll just pile a shitload of rocks basically on either side to keep the island in theory from moving, but they move anyway. What happens when we do this actually is as the waves move down the coastline from north to south, they'll deposit the sediment along the northern barrier of the inlet that we've set up. And this will deprive the southern half of sediment. So this will cause the barrier island to drift inland toward the or toward the mainland, while the other island on the north side stays in place. So if you look at pictures of, uh, I keep using Assateague Island, but if you keep looking at pictures of it, you know from 1950s, the when the the stabilization was relatively new, and compared to now you can see how much the island has shifted. 
And it's really incredible, actually. Shifted inward. Shifted inward toward the mainland. Yeah, exactly. Shrinking the size of the lagoon, basically. So do they ever meet the shore eventually? Or do they kind of dissipate before that? Usually their movement is not that extreme. So they don't they don't move all the way and they don't usually move that quickly. Um, what's more likely to happen is that they'll just get completely submerged. Basically as, because once it starts moving inland, it, it's moving that way because it's being deprived of sediment or because the sea level is rising. So those islands are just going to shrink and shrink and shrink as they move toward the mainland and just eventually disappear. And then so. you'll just well end up with nothing, I guess. So there's not a lot of strictly terrestrial life on these barrier islands, I'm guessing. No, no, definitely not, because they're so dynamic. You can't really create. They're so dyna- they're dynamic, and there's also just not a lot of habitat for terrestrial organisms. I mean, like I mentioned earlier, some of these areas have trees and forests and things like that, but that's pretty. That's not the rule. That's more the exception, you know. Mm-hmm. So with like most typical islands, especially volcanic ones, they just sort of pop up. They're great for speciation. You know, you get like one that just ends up there, you know, a storm sends it off or it's on a raft of seaweed and then it can instantly, not instantly, it diversifies rapidly. You get a bunch of new species, i.e. Darwin's finches, stuff like that. But on barrier islands, I guess you can't really get that. They're just not around long enough. Well, so the barrier islands will stick around like the Outer Banks in North Carolina have been there for centuries, right? But in the grand scheme of things, that is not long. Oh, yeah. No, 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 not at all. They're not permanent geologic structures the same way that the islands of Hawaii or Indonesia or anything like that are. They're temporary in a lot of cases. But the barrier islands, like their existence is pretty is pretty permanent. These barrier islands have existed at least along the North American coast since the since the last ice age. One of the we're not entirely sure how they formed initially. But one of the theories, or at least one of the theories about what either caused or contributed to their formation was that glaciers that covered North America retreated. This kind of released a lot of pressure off of the continental plate and allowed it to rise. And as it rose, it pushed up a lot of the land and it pushed up these barrier islands, basically, and or helped like raise them off of the ocean floor. Uh, so instead of having these like sandbars and things like that out at sea, you now have islands. What's really interesting about barrier islands is how humans interact with them. Terribly. We really do because we love barrier islands. I mean, pretty much any ocean resort that you can name along the East Coast, even down into the Gulf of Mexico, is either entirely or partially built upon a barrier island. Um, whether it's Ocean City, whether it's the Outer Banks, whether it's um, Myrtle Beach, you know, just go right down the coast. You see, those are the only see... three beaches I've ever been to in my life. <laughs> you just listed all of them. They're just the first two that popped into my mind. <laughs> those are the only three I've ever been to. <laughs> but but you know, it, it's true. That's that's how that works. And we go there because we love to be near the beach, or at least people who aren't Aaron's parents love to be near the beach. <laughs> well, we went when I was a kid. Just at some point, I guess, decided, eh, I don't really want to anymore. There is a lot of stuff to do there. You know, we love being near the, sh- near the ocean. They're popular sites for sport fishing because um, you can take a boat out and, you know, either fish the continental shelf or, you know, those areas around there. These areas are very rich right off the coast. This creates problems because the nature of a barrier island's existence runs in direct contradiction to the way that we would like them to exist. We would like barrier islands to stay exactly where they are. They kind of say, no, fuck you. We're doing our own thing. So we build all these resorts and all this real estate on top of these islands that are constantly shifting. and. So the exact nature of how each barrier island responds to sea level rise and to different factors, it will depend on where they are, because not all barrier islands along the East Coast are exactly alike in terms of where they are, where they get their sediment loads and things like that. 
Yeah, they, and they're also being threatened by sea level rise, too, and global warming and climate change. These islands that are already dynamic might actually disappear entirely in you know the coming centuries because of how carbon dioxide is affecting the atmosphere and how sea levels are rising around the world. So uh, don't build there. No. No, don't do that. By but- all accounts, Ocean City should no longer exist. And this isn't like a personal preference either. Like it is a sandbar. Oh, I'll make it personal. Ocean City <laughs> should not exist. I will make it personal as hell. The fact that it is stupidly constructed on a barrier island, it is just garbage. If anyone from Ocean City is listening, I'm assuming they won't be for much longer, but I don't know, fight me. Who lives in Ocean City year-round? It's got to be sad in the winter. Having been to Ocean City in the winter, it really is. Yeah. (laughs) It it is a goddamn ghost town. Because I have, so I have family who live in southeastern Delaware. Um, They're about six miles off the beach, so they're not like in the resort communities. And their houses aren't built on moving islands. Um, We've gone into Ocean City during the wintertime, and it is just so bleak. And what they've actually had to do there in a lot of places is as these islands begin to shift, especially towards the mainland, they have to dredge sand from offshore and replenish the beach as this island is trying to move. Yeah, I saw a boat doing that over the summer. I went to the Outer Banks and I saw it happening. Yeah, it's a huge operation. It's like the rough equivalent of like putting a leash on a toddler. Like... (laughs) They're just going to gnaw right through it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, the toddler has too much energy. You're, it's a really impermanent solution. You can't hold that at least forever. And that's exactly what happens. They do this all this dredging work, and they replenish the beach, and then 10 years later, they got to do it all over again. So it's it's a losing battle, really. But it's worth it because of the amount of money that these resort communities bring in and the amount of tourist attraction. Yeah, I guess they can actually there. afford it in the end. Oh, they totally can. They're making money hand over fist, really, during like four or five months of the year. So, did you ever see a series of unfortunate events? The movie. I wait. Is that the one on Netflix with Neil Patrick Harris? Uh, there's a Netflix series. I'm talking about the Jim Carrey movie. Oh no. Oh. Okay. I guess this is a reference you don't get. How about that? Oh, don't worry. I'll I'll talk about Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, a lot. You, you'll get six more on me. Yeah, exactly. There's a there's a lady that had a house on the side of a cliff, and it was just held up with like janky pieces of plywood so that the house would like lean left to right constantly, so much that like tables would be shifting back and forth. That's kind of what these islands are. They're just constantly throwing sand to Frankenstein them back to life. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, Up until very recently, my grandparents actually owned a condo in one of the high rises in Ocean City. And they've owned that place since like the late, very late 80s. I hear stories from like my family all the time about how the surf at high tide back in the 80s and in the early 90s would wash under the building and onto the highway behind it. And then they did a bunch of dredging, and now there's actually a goddamn beach there. But still, like, that's crazy. Like, you, there's water coming under your beach. Usually, if there's water coming under your house, people are probably like, "Ah, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, too bad we can't stay. Let's call the real estate agent. But we've decided, no, we want to stay here. We These structures that we build with the intention of permanence aren't going to be around. And a really famous example of this is the Hatteras Island Lighthouse in North Carolina in the Outer Banks. So because of the shifting of the island, this iconic landmark, which I don't know if you've seen it, Aaron, but if you basically get any kind of postcards from Hatteras or the Outer Banks, often they'll include this picture of this island that's got like black and white candy canes. I don't know. In all honesty, who does that? No one, no one does. No one does postcards anymore. But the reference still like is relevant because of like how people use those postcards to denote their iconic landmarks. Anyway, if you see a picture of a lighthouse in in the Outer Banks, usually it's a picture of the Hatteras Lighthouse, which kind of has this black and white candy cane thing going up it. Um, yeah, I, I've definitely seen that in like some sort of crappy gift shop. See, there you go. Postcards. Right? Right? Okay, okay. 
Yeah, yeah. I yeah. get the reference, but I stand by the statement that like, who gets a postcard anymore? What's the point? Send me a picture. I agree with the statement, and I'm standing. I am also standing by my reference, so I'm glad we're on the same page. Moving on. It was in danger of being lost at one point because of the way the island was moving toward the mainland. And so they had to like debate what the hell they were going to do because the island was moving so rapidly, I guess, that they couldn't just dredge up a bunch of sand and put it in front of the lighthouse. Well, are they just going to wrap a couple boats around the lighthouse and pull? That's basically what they did. <laughs> they picked up the lighthouse and moved it inland. Like, that's what they had to do. It's completely and utterly ridiculous. Like, what? Like, any. If you have to pick up your house and move it, unless it is like a trailer, you're probably not doing building correctly. And all this craziness, I kind of have this image of a barrier island as like a soldier who has been forced to open a daycare. Because originally they were there to protect you and keep you safe. But all of a sudden, now they've been asked to nurture and support a volatile and fickle community that they had no business supporting in the first place. Now they have to serve you like $15 rum and Cokes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If it's a cheap place. Yeah, if it's a cheap place and sell you fried Oreos, deep fried Oreos, cheesecake. Uh, deep fried cheesecake was good for about, was heaven for about five minutes. Anything deep fried is good on the first couple eh, first couple pieces they usually give you like a six pack and then you just hate yourself and you realize i don't want anymore okay i'm gonna push back on that because it seems some deep fried food is amazing and it's like um, an amazing meal but deep fried cheesecake i'm with you i got through about three of those was in like a catatonic state like i just <laughs> could not move i had the deep fried oreos and like i got six of them but first two, I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And then third, fourth, I'm like, eh. And then I just hated myself. I didn't even eat the last two. I didn't want them anymore. Yeah, I know. They they sell you six. They should give you like two and then some heart medication. Anyway, that is my piece on Barrier Islands. So I hope that was informative and will inform your vacation plans moving forward. Yeah, maybe just, just a little bit. Don't go to Barrier Island. One bad storm, it's all gone. Don't do it. Don't do it. Ocean City is one hurricane away from being a pile of rubble more than any other place that I've ever, ever been to in my life. If the best solution to a problem is to just put more sand down, then it's probably not worth investing in, in all honesty. Uh, I'm just imagining all these city councils of, on these islands and these resort communities just hiring like a legion of Dale Gribbles just to throw a bunch of sand on the beach. <laughs> Pocket sand. I was Pocket thinking. Sand. Pocket sand. <laughs> The uh, was it like the twenty five annual residents of Ocean City just form a chain and they all scoop a bucket of sand and they pass it down and then dump it on the street, build it up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's oh god, that's what should happen. But it's it's insanity, honestly. But Bear Islands themselves are cool and unique habitats if we would just interact with them properly. Yeah, let them do their thing. But we don't. Anyway, that pretty much concludes my piece. So I hope that was informative and entertaining. All but. right. Well, I guess I'm up to bat. So that you are. I don't know how you're going to respond to this. This seems like this is going to be one that's going to make you frustrated. Or you're going to fight me over it. Russell Ooh, loves to debate. I really do. He He will debate anything and he'll know it's a losing battle and he'll keep doing it. I just enjoy fighting. I just enjoy the conflict, the fight, the actual <laughs> fight itself. It's fantastic. I say so, what my top. We should define what an island is. So, what is an island? Oh, am I going to be questioning whether this even belongs in this episode? Yeah. Oh God damn it! All right. Uh, an island is something that is surrounded by a lack of the same thing. Okay, so maybe we are on the same term. So Yeah, because I did use a pretty broad definition of island when I was looking for topics. I did consider a lot of different things. Broaden the definition. Let's see how broad you made it, though. So most people think island, and the most typical example is a landmass in the middle of the sea. So you have a habitat that is surrounded by a different habitat, so it's isolated. Okay, 
Or you have like a an accessory landmass that's like what I talked about. Exactly. And I have research to back up that this counts as an island. Instead of a landmass in the middle of the ocean, I'm going to be talking about a body of water in the middle of the desert. Oh, you're talking about oases? A specific one. Oh, okay. I actually so, yeah, it's flipped. I'm, I'm not going to I'm not going to fight you on this. I Okay, that's good. I had like a I had a whole article listed if you were going to fight me on it. I'm not even going to bring that up. No, no, because I remember we used a pretty broad definition of islands when we were talking about them in ecology classes in college. Yes, like we, we talked did. about forests that are surrounded by grasslands and things like that, or even like even like clearings in a forest could technically be called islands because there's no the difference in vegetation is so extreme. Yeah, you can broaden it. And usually if there's something adapted to that habitat, they don't spread out. Like uh, an example is in Africa, there's some mountains that are really tall and they're kind of like a temperate highland or more like a temperate rainforest. It's very wet up there, whereas surrounding areas like savannah, it's dry. So in all these different mountains, you can find different species of one example is chameleons. They're never going to really interbreed because they can't cross that savannah. They're going to stay in that little rainforest. So in that case, they kind of act like islands. They're all separated from one another. Yeah, their little karate chop hands don't handle grasslands super well. They can't cross deserts very quickly. They can't do anything quickly. That's not true. They can catch insects, one insect, very quickly. One insect. They can't do two. They got they got a fast tongue and absolutely nothing else going for them, really. They don't even camouflage. They don't no, they camouflage. don't. Yeah. Everyone thinks chameleons can just change their color. This isn't about chameleons, actually. Uh, Anyway, people think they can just change their color. I could talk about how stupid chameleons are for like 30 more minutes. Well, they're cool looking. I like their hands. They're very. Okay. They are very cool looking. But overall, I'm just like, ugh. could you not? Yeah, they don't change color willingly. It's based off of like more like temperature or occasionally if they're like very frightened. Yeah, it's it's more about their temperament. It's like their emotion. They're like a living mood ring. Yeah, so like they can't just camouflage like on command. Yeah, like you, yeah, you don't yeah. just put them in front of like a pink wall and they don't just switch like that. They don't do that. Cuttlefish can. Oh yeah, cuttlefish yeah. can. Octopi can, which is why I'm thinking that you know a lot more of the resources we use to study chameleons should instead be used to study octopi and cuttlefish. It's not that no animals can do it. It's that that you're picking the one that can't, and there's yeah. plenty of others that actually can. Yeah, Much exactly. better. Nah. Yeah. Anyways, so today I'm going to be talking about the Devil's Hole. Have you heard of this? Uh, no, no. Is this different from the Devil's Anus in that one Thor movie? What Thor movie was that? No, it was Ragnarok. They had a portal on that crazy Jeff Goldblum world, and it was called the Devil's Anus. I think I'm pretty sure. I don't remember it being called the Devil's Anus. Yeah, they were like, Thor was all like, oh, we're going to go through that portal. And they were all like, you want to go through the Devil's Anus? Sounds right. But I won't debate you on it because, you know, I I don't care enough. So even if I know I would lose a debate, I'm not going to, (laughs) unlike some people. (laughs) Just by sheer attrition, you'd give up. That's my strategy for debates. I will outlast you. Okay, so Devil's Hole. So, hey, so it's called the Devil's Hole. Does it come with a Devil's G spot? That is yet to be unearthed, I guess. This is why you should be a geologist. Yeah, exactly. You find all kinds of cool shit. You find Devil's Holes all over the place. So, the thing about Devil's Hole, there are multiple things called Devil's Holes. There, I guess, is just a popular name, and people like to reuse it. So, this one is in the United States in the Armagosa Desert in Nevada. And it is pretty close to Death Valley, too. Okay. So it's dry. It's a limestone cavern. It's thought to form about 500,000 years ago. What do they think formed it? It's a limestone cavern. Limestone just kind of dissolves. Oh, okay. All right. Water. Yeah. I don't know. That's how, like, all caves form. the limestone for the most part. Right. But I don't know. It could have. There could have been, like, some stream activity or... Yeah, how do they think it formed? Oh, it was just a guy who just kept digging a hole. Yeah, there could have been some ancient dwarves with dynamite (laughs) running around. You don't know. 
So if you approach this from a distance, it looks like nothing. You're walking across the desert for a few miles. You see a bit of a rocky outcrop like in the side of a hill. It's kind of odd that it has a fence around it and some security systems because you're kind of in the middle of nowhere. As you get closer, you just see a big okay, hole. But you're in Nevada, so no, not really. Like, there's all kinds of restricted sites out there. We tried storming one like three years ago. It didn't go very well. Yeah, storming my ass. They, it was like 12 people dancing outside the front gate. <laughs> they basically turned this like a legitimate, like, they basically turned this operation where we're going to try and unearth government secrets into this basically is the Area just, 51 raid, for those yeah, who don't know. Into like three separate concerts, one of which was just garbage. The whole thing was garbage. Like, it was a funny joke. I think one person actually tried to cross, but he just got arrested. Like, Yeah, yeah, but I don't know. I, I Apparently, Alien Stock was actually a half-decent concert. Anyways, <laughs> back to the actual topic. It's been like eight minutes. I haven't even started on like saying what it is yet. Okay, well, then you have plenty of time to edit. Uh, you have plenty to edit out plenty of time to edit no i have plenty of time i have to spend the editing <laughs> okay so about 10 to 20 feet down you see a little bit of a shaded pool i think it's like about 22 square feet in total it's nothing special you look down the water is pretty clear and you see a shelf and like on that side it's like a couple feet deep pretty clear algae grown and then since it's a little slanted there's like an angle and then it gets a little deeper and you think you know, it might go down like around the bend a little bit, maybe. You know, how how think you how deep you think it goes? Uh, it's a devil. It's called the devil's hole, so pretty deep. Yeah, well, the devil's got quite the intestinal tract, from what I've heard. It's over twelve hundred feet deep. Well, I expect the devil's hole to be a little bit deeper, but you know, I guess that's fine. It's over. That's all they can measure. Wait, what? How could they not measure it? Okay, well, let me explain this hole. So the surface pool is only... That's how sex ed classes start, Aaron. Please (laughs) use a different phrase. Let me explain this hole. We had a sex ed guy. Oh, what was his name? I think it was like Mr. Talbert. And at the end of every sentence, it was followed with a, don't laugh. Like, (laughs) this here's the penis. Don't laugh. Scrotum. Don't laugh. <laughs> it's almost to the point that no one would laugh if he didn't keep saying that. <laughs> I remember going like in a, being in a sex ed class in like fifth grade, and um, we were talking about puberty more than sex ed. And uh, at the beginning of the class, we were like, "All right, so our teacher was like, all right, so you're going to do a lot of growing in puberty. What do you think is going to grow?'" And like everyone like raises their hands, and like the obvious answer is, "Oh, your penis is going to grow," but no one wants to say it. So everyone's talking about like, oh, your head's going to grow. Oh, your arms are going to grow. Oh, your chest is going to grow. Oh, your legs are going to grow. And this is a classroom of all boys. And so eventually this one kid raises his hands and he's like, all right, I'm finally just going to say it. And our teacher's like, yeah, yeah, we know what you're about to say. Go ahead. And he goes, you're dangle. (laughs) He couldn't even say it. No. Fully. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's like an answer you give on family feud yes oh no that's the answer that pops up you say penis and then on the board they say hmm the dingle you know something like that yeah. uh, while steve harvey is making that really shocked like pikachu face you know like yeah oh my oh, God. what you asked a sexual question you got a sexual answer and it's the number one answer how could this happen now i'm gonna talk for 30 minutes about how we're all going to hell <laughs> anyway yeah <laughs> I still can't get over that. Steve Harvey years. freaking out when he sees a number one answer for things that rhyme with weenus. <laughs> <laughs> Just has a heart attack and dies on the spot. <laughs> he really does. And even when somebody se- finally says penis, they, uh, the answer is still dingle with like a little like winking emoticon. <laughs> yeah, right it still it. is. <laughs> we, you know what goes here, right? Anyway. Anyway. So. The surface pool of the Devil's Hole, that's the park you see, it's only a top couple feet. There's an angle drop-off, and that goes down into a chamber that's about 160 feet. There is, like, they've mapped it out the best they can. There's a ton of funnels and dead-end pockets. This is not something you want to go in. In Hmm. 1965, a couple of teenagers hopped the fence to snorkel down in the hole. 
Uh, one didn't come back up. And then another went down to find him and also didn't come back up. Damn. So as soon as you go around that first bend, you lose all light. Just nothing. And there's so many false air pockets, dead ends, etc. So later, some rescue divers were sent in to recover the bodies. They worked their way down the channels and approached a massive opening into a cavern full of water. So the whole thing is underwater, but this is just a huge opening. Like before, it was kind of narrow, and this is just like massive space. Wow. Okay. They dropped a weighted line to get an idea of how deep it was, and they ran out of line. So from where they were, it was over 900 feet deep. So about 1,200 feet deep in total. Holy shit. Okay, wow. So this large opening is aptly named the Infinity Room. And the rescue divers did not explore that. What lives in the Devil's Hole besides the spirits of dead teenagers? Oh, I'll get to that. Okay. I'm not done talking about the geology. Never thought I'd say that. You got to talk a, talk a lot about the structure of all the devil's holes. Yeah. So basically, it, to put this in the best perspective I can, imagine if you go through like a manhole, like a little sewer thing, you know, you're a hero in a half shell, you're popping down in, and you enter a basketball court filled with water in complete darkness, and then you have to find that single opening to get out again. Yeah, they never found those kids' bodies. They still haven't been found to this day. Damn. That's awful. So later explorations in the 90s found that the Infinity Room actually does narrow down into a funnel. But even then, the bottom of this was still never located. They just know it funnels down a little bit. Oh, my God. Okay. It is insane how deep this goes. And the craziest bit is you can actually measure tectonic activity in the hole. Uh, Okay. They can measure earthquakes in Indonesia. In the Devil's Hole on the Western United States. Oh, wow. I was confused there. I was like, we can pretty much measure tectonic activity anywhere. Yeah, but you can like, measure it from like across the world. Okay, that's that's incredible. Honestly. Like, in 2012, they had a 7.4 magnitude earthquake and the water levels in the hole were actually rising and falling by about four feet. So this isn't just like a little mini ripple like this is it's going up and down where everything else isn't. It's good to know we have a place where we can keep an eye on Indonesia. You know. Just know how every, we, we only know if there's an earthquake there. But you can feel in other areas. They've felt earthquakes from like Alaska, I think. They've also sensed it in the hole. And of course, some nearby like Mexico, other parts of the United States. I'm just picturing like FEMA just like having a guy stationed at this hole. Like and when the water levels start rising and falling, he calls them up and it's just like, guys, go check on Java. It's there's going to be a lot. Of, there's going to be a lot of damage. Well, actually, people do monitor this hole year round. There is equipment monitoring like everything on this. Wow. OK. Like, do, what do they monitor? Uh, well, I don't know the exact it, seismology is beyond me, but I know they have equipment to measure it. How they measure it. I don't know, but I know they do. I know it's a very unique place for that. And also, so it's clear that. They call it the window to the water table, so it's clear. It stretches down very deep and very wide. Okay, so we have all this equipment that's like monitoring this thing 24-7, and we still don't know how goddamn deep it is? You want to go down and find out? No, but like we should be able to, like, you know, use radio waves or, you know, something like that to find the bottom, right? Well, there's a reason why we can't disturb it too much. Which is? Well, you're probably wondering, hey, what lives in this bottomless pit? What, is there a kraken down there or something? <laughs> no, I wish. It's a devil's hole pupfish. Oh, okay. So this is one of the most endangered animals on the planet. They were actually the first ever species to be formally declared endangered. It's like back in the 1930s, there's a paper published saying like basically how rare these things are. Later, retroactively, like in the 60s, when they created the Endangered Species Act, they made these the first one on the list. Gotcha. Okay. Pupfish are just little fish. They're generic fish looking. Honestly, don't really know what else to say. They're kind of rounded. 
I think they call them pupfish because they have somewhat playful personalities. Like they'll follow you. If you saw an aquarium, they'd follow you around wanting to get food. As fish just do generally. Not all fish, but yeah, pretty much every fish a does. A lot of them do, yeah. When they learn that you feed them, they come up. I used to work with zebrafish and we had like a bunch of tanks in a row and whenever we were feeding, the zebrafish would, you know, catch on. And so if you feed the tank like five tanks down, you know, next to it, just start going crazy. Just went around like mad bastards. Like we're about to get fed. So, you know, they know where their bread's buttered. So devil's hole pupfish, tiny fish. They top out at an inch long, usually about three quarters of an inch. Not big. These guys are tough. They're from the family Cyprinodontidae, which I believe translates to carp tooth. Carp tooth. Carp tooth, yeah. Hmm, okay. I didn't know know carp had teeth. So pupfish can actually be found all along the Americas. They're extremely good at tolerating a wide range of salinities. Depending on the species, it could be freshwater to six times the concentration of seawater. Wow. Okay. Yeah, depending on the species. And they can live in water with extremely low oxygen concentration, very poor water conditions, very polluted water. Uh, to put it in perspective, the devil's hole, the temperature is about 91 degrees year round. And these guys are just fine with it. Yeah, if you're going to live in the devil's hole, you really got to be prepared to deal with a lot of shit. It's not a good life. I'll get to why it's not. It's not a good life. Actually, I have uh, in Maryland, they call them sheep's head minnows. But they are a type of pupfish. I have one in a fish tank. They're in uh, Maryland. They're not endangered. They're pretty plentiful, actually. But they're bullets. Like they can tolerate a huge range of conditions. A large number of pupfish live in the desert, and a reason for this is kind of ties into the island thing. Is there used to be large glacial lakes western half of the U.S. When these dry up, you know, you get smaller bodies of water. And that will distribute the pupfish into these bodies of water. And they create islands. Yay. Because you'll get like a small lake surrounded by desert. They're not going to interbreed with the other pupfish at all. Because there's no way in hell they're going to reach each other. So eventually they'll speciate. So there are many desert pupfish in the United States. A lot of them are also endangered too. But the devil's hole is the rarest with there only being about 35 to 400 at a time. Well, yeah, of course the devil's hole is the rarest. It's it's the devil's. It's not like it's on, you know, your ordinary demon hole. This is the devil's hole we're talking about. Well, that joke sucks too. I'm cutting that out. <laughs> you know that, dude. Yeah, not my best. <laughs> Carry on. Okay. 35 to 400 ever. That's all the hole can support. I think there are some numbers that put it like a high, maybe five or six hundred only in like certain times of the year. But that's it. That's the average. Wow. So remember how I said that the top few feet of the hole is exposed to sunlight? Right. Yeah. That means that's the only area where algae can grow. Uh, oh, yeah. OK. So even though the pupfish have access to this huge volume of water, like twelve hundred feet deep. They could go all the way down if they wanted to, but There's that's not where the eat. food is. Yeah. It's kind of like the open ocean. A lot of it is just kind of barren. Like, even though fish could be there, you go where the food is. So it's that's hard. why you find most fish closer to the shore or in a reef, as opposed to just out in the middle of the ocean. You know, it's hard to believe that there isn't a whole lot of life going on in the devil's hole. Well, there's it's free real estate. It's like the equivalent of real estate in New Jersey. Like it's free for a reason. Sure, there's a lot of it, but and it's cheap, but it's cheap for a reason, buddy. (laughs) You know, if you're going to buy a house there, buckle up. So pupfish life is a real shitty one. They have a bunch of adaptations for living in this harsh environment. Also, I'm going to acknowledge the unintentional pun of living in the devil's hole being really shitty really shitty yeah if you think that's bad what do you hear their brothers in the devil's colon (laughs) (laughs) so for one they have to migrate up and down daily to avoid the direct sun when it gets too warm out because even though it's 91 degrees in that hole like year round that doesn't mean you want to be up there 
year round. Right. Okay. So they have to like kind of move daily just to get the optimum temperature. Right. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Of course, they're mainly eating algae. So they kind of just eat. They, there's a little shelf there. They just eat everything there. They'll just be feeding on it. So they mainly consume inorganic material that they actually can't digest. Basically, you're just eating rocks and hoping there's like a little bit of food stuck to it. Yeah. If I take a protein powder and like sprinkled it over some gravel, you're just going to be like eating the gravel because you know you'll get the protein powder, but you still got to pass that gravel out. <laughs> and you, you know, there's some dumbass CrossFit bro who would do that. <laughs> you write that down. Write that down. I need the extra protein, bro. I'm a, uh, I'm a fiend. I need the protein, man. So they're just ruined around in these rocks, hoping to find something edible like algae or some small invertebrates. They can enter a state of topor and stop breathing, and they undergo a type of anaerobic respiration. Now, a lot of animals can do this. Hell, we do it too, and that's how we build up lactic acid. Right. Okay. And that's what makes your muscles be tingly after a workout. But these guys produce ethanol when they do it. Oh. So they can hold their breath and, in theory, get themselves piss drunk. Uh, if only it were that easy. And uh, probably one of the coolest things about them is whenever there's seismic activity, they immediately start to breed. Why? So <laughs> I think I couldn't find an exact reason why. So this is my theory. When there is seismic activity, that can like really disrupt the uh, hole. Like I said, sometimes the water level will go up and down by about four feet. That can cause a lot of catastrophe in like a small area. So I think they're just immediately starting to prepare for the next generation. Like they know they're screwed. <laughs> when they hear this earthquake coming, they're like, fuck it. We're dead. We're dead. Start just, laying eggs. They're just out here partying like it's 1999. If I'm about to die, I might as well get laid first. <laughs> They're not even good at breeding. Like most fish usually lay, I want to say most fish, a lot of fish lay a lot of eggs and put in very little parental investment. Or sure. they still do, but they have a ton of babies. So if one dies, that's fine. Females right. lay about one egg at a time. Every time they spawn. Oh my God. And they have a very low survival rate. <laughs> You're living yeah. in like a tiny little... You're living in a hole. You're legit living in a hole. You're eating rocks and hoping that there's something edible stuck to it. And every time it, the pot stirs a little bit, you have to start making babies because you know you're screwed. <laughs> Just to hope the species survives. Wow. Yeah. And like I said, food sounds wise. Like, sounds like life in Anaheim. I don't know. What is that? PA? No, that's in California. Oh. Anyway, move on. Yeah. So uh, these guys are, I want to say generalists or scavengers. They eat whatever they can get. So that's mainly algae and very small invertebrates like ostracods, stuff like that. Their population will fluctuate over how much algae is available. And here's a fun fact for you. Barn owls will actually roost nearby the devil's hole and occasionally come down for a drink. Okay. Well, when there's a lot of owls in the area, the population of the pupfish will actually increase. Because the owl pellets bring in nutrients into the water. Oh, God. So they're legit relying on these owl pellets to live. So they're basically living in an owl sewage treatment plant. Yeah. That sounds terrible. It's called the devil's hole for a reason. It's not a great place to live. Oh, God. Speaking of which, That's let's get to the sad part. These guys are endangered for a reason. Let's take a look at uh, what's threatening them. Okay. So like I said, the habitat they live in is extremely fragile. Even though it's a very old habitat, it's hanging on by a thread. The first major threat they faced was groundwater depletion. In the 1970s, a lot of people were tapping into the underground water reserves that the Devil's Hole was also connected to. And as people used more water, the water level in the hole began to sink. So people were tapping into the devil's intestines to get water, and that depleted the devil's hole? Yeah, it's more of the devil's duodenum, I say. <laughs> Fair enough. So even, like I said, even though the hole goes down thousands of feet, they only live in the top 80 feet, 
And of that, they can only eat in the top four or five feet. So once that goes below that, they get no food. They, they have nothing. Oh, yeah. Damn. And these guys are not adapted to live in the bottoms of the devil's hole. They're not blinds or lacking pigment. They spend most of their time up at the top. Wow. Okay, yeah, th- this is a really dire predicament. Yeah, it really sucks. And the situation isn't great because when you keep in mind, a lot of this water was for agricultural use. So it's for food, you know, like uh, granted, a lot of it's probably like for maybe cattle industry, which ain't great for the environment. But it's not like it's being used for an amusement park or something. It's like a lot of farms are relying on this water. And then when you get the Endangered Species Act and you have to protect these animals and that involves in protecting their water, you get a legal nightmare. Yeah. And there's a lot to this. It's kind of worth a read. It's it just goes on. I'll sum it up. The federal government stepped in the 70s and pretty much told people they couldn't use the water anymore. There's a lot of red tape and legal battles over the years. So to boost public awareness, the Desert Fish Council created bumper stickers that read Save the Pupfish. A lot of people were not happy about the pupfish. They didn't really want to give up their access to water for a small hole of a couple hundred fish. So then they got bumper stickers that read, kill the pupfish. <laughs> I want to protect these animals. It's a really cool area, but I can also sympathize with like the farmers or the people living in that area because they just want water. As you do when you need to you know, survive. Yeah, but in the end, there really weren't too many people living in this region. A couple people moved out. Some got their land bought by the government. And by the 80s, the whole area was turned into a nature preserve. So that kind of solved that issue by like the late 80s. It was it was OK. And now it's all known as a National Ash Meadows Wildlife Preserve. And that helps stop the water loss, although it still is lower than it used to be historically, but not low enough that they're in a dire situation. OK, so is there anything else threatening them? Oh, absolutely. You think that was it? <laughs> I did not. That's why I asked. <laughs> I'm curious. So the pupfish populations still fluctuate despite the steadier water supply. In the 90s, they had like another crash where their populations started to go down again. And this one is less understood what caused it directly. It's likely a couple different things. One is thought that they might have just been inbreeding a bit too much, which is going to be an issue again in the future, if that were the case. How was it not already an issue? I don't know. I guess if you have a certain number of individuals and they breed in just the right way, they'll be all right. But based on how low their population is getting, inbreeding is just going to get worse eventually. One potential cause. Another was a change in microbial communities. So if you're scuba diving in this hole, and rarely anyone does anymore, they really restricted it, even for researchers. You have to fully sanitize all your gear and let it dry and a Sterile environment for 30 days, I believe, is the requirements. Because they don't want you bringing in any bacteria that's not in this hole already. Because like I said, that can flip the environment and there goes the pupfish. And more recently, there's a species of diving beetle that has become established. This happened like late 90s, early 2000s. And unfortunately, it preys on the young pupfish. Oh, no. Okay. Not only that, but also competes with the adults for the same food resources. So it's wow. yeah, it's both a predator and competition for them. And prior to this, they had no predators in the hole. Damn. Okay. So by the early 2000s, there's only about 40 adults left. If you look at a graph, this is like the lowest point for them, and it's a combination of many things that I've already mentioned. But this kind of funniest is uh, it's not exactly actually no, it's pretty funny. There's an earthquake that actually knocks some equipment into the hole and it killed 80 fish. What equipment was it? I don't know what the equipment was. I'm thinking it was like a spotlight or something. It might have short-circuited taken them out. Yeah, like, do they have, like, flashbang grenades on site? Maybe it just crushed them all. I'm not sure what happened exactly, but you can look at their population graph. It's on Wikipedia. You can just see that whop when it goes down. And then you can start reading the history and say, yeah, in 2008, an equipment fell in and killed 80 fish, which was like 70%, I think, at the time. Yeah, like, did Wiley e. Coyote, like, stick up a whole bunch of dynamite right near the devil's hole? Like, <laughs> Someone just tossed in a toaster, I guess. 
One of the interns, he was just making his lunch. He was like, oh, Butterfingers. <laughs> of course, he left it plugged in, too. Got an extension cord. Went <laughs> yeah. all the way to the hole. Don't know why he did that. Really wanted to enjoy his bagel while looking at the devil's hole. So, of course, researchers, I don't know who did this, but I'm sure they felt pretty bad. Nothing has happened like that since. They're also feeling pretty bad about the fact that they don't have a job anymore. Yeah. <laughs> They're not allowed back there anymore. No, not at all. Of course, they had to up security anyways, because in 2016, a couple drunk guys broke in and jumped into the hole. Oh, no. They crushed a lot of eggs and they vomited into the water. Only one adult was killed, but it wiped out a lot of the young. Oh, my God. No. Yeah, they left a couple beer cans floating in it. And I think they ended up with like a $50,000 fine. That makes sense. But like you also... They've been doing so much work to keep the microbial communities like constant in the devil's hole. You don't know where those guys have been. Just a bunch of drunk like hillbillies from Nevada. And they're vomiting into the water. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're probably vomiting up all kinds of rocks and stuff, you know? Yeah. They've just been eating rocks. They sprinkle protein powder on it. Yeah. Actually, the pupfish was kind of an inspiration to them in that regard. <laughs> They're on the trendy pupfish diet. So the pupfish get no break. Historically, their populations were about five to six hundred. And now they're down to 40 ish in the early 2000s. Oh, God. Now, fortunately, there have been some successful efforts. The biggest was securing the minimum water level and establishing the nature preserve. So now that no one's really tapping into that water supply, the pupfish should be all right in that regards. Assuming there aren't any more drunk people who really feel like jumping in. Oh, security has been upped. And at this time, there's already cameras. So it didn't take a lot of work to actually catch the guys that did it. They were caught on camera doing it. And I'm pretty sure one went back the next day to get his wallet. <laughs> no. <laughs> so uh, a couple other attempts. They tried to create an artificial shelf to allow more algae to grow, which in theory would allow more pupfish to forage, but they didn't seem to like this shelf very much until recent years. I mean, they've been trying to get that to work since the 70s, and it's only just now really working. Hmm. Okay. And of course, like I said, there's a fence and barbed wire now and a strict no visitor policy. That makes sense. So no one sees the pupfish. You can watch from the other side of the graded fence. I'm just trying to imagine a version of Ocean's Eleven where they're trying to break into the devil's hole and everyone's drunk. <laughs> everyone's drunk. At the end of the movie, they just have the fish in a bucket and then just trip. Yeah. <laughs> and someone vomits on the on the puddle of pupfish. <laughs> someone on vomits on them for good measure. Yeah. <laughs> what else? Yep. So there's been a long history of attempts to rear the pupfish in captivity or in other similar bodies of water. Most of these populations either died out or if they were introduced to other areas, they hybridized with other pupfish species, which is no good. That's how you kind of lose the species altogether. Right, right. Yeah, a lot of these died of medical conditions. A lot of the pupfish died of leukemia. Well, that's just sad. Yeah, they were all the babies, too. Oh, no. Yeah. The, these were all make-a-wish pupfish? They were all make-a-wish, but they didn't get their wish. No. <laughs> that's terrible. However, in more recent times, the Ash Meadows Fish Conservation has been successful in raising pupfish. They currently have about 50 adults, and they have successfully bred them in captivity. Nice, nice. So as of now, the population in the hole ranges from about 100 to 150 adults, and there will be a new population survey. It should be happening soon if it hasn't happened already. I read fall 2022. I'd like to hear an update about the pupfish when the survey is done. They're definitely making a rebound when there was only 40 of them left. But these guys, if they've proven anything, they're tough at least. But also very fragile. But also very fragile. Well, I don't think any fish likes to be trampled and thrown up on. <laughs> Probably not. Probably not. And that is my piece on the pupfish. Nice. Nice. Yeah, kind of. Neither of us really talked about an actual island for this island episode, did we? Hey, well... Not a traditional island in the sense. Okay, yeah, not a traditional island, yeah. I thought I for agree. sure, like, at least one of us would. 
Yeah, and then you chose to talk about the Devil's Hole and cut those odds down dramatically. Well, I th- that's what I thought you would pick something. There's so many islands out there. I did, I did, and there and there were some cool islands that I looked at, but I I don't know, there just wasn't enough really to talk about for a full episode. I felt like so. Yeah. Yeah. I so did. the not island island episode. <laughs> the Nyland episode. The Nyland episode. Yes. All right. So are we going to talk about a topic for next episode? Yeah. What you thinking? I have a couple requests from a couple of our ardent fans who are not friends and family. Totally not. Definitely not. Um, And none of these came from my mom. One is since we live in Maryland, we could talk about it could be a Maryland episode. It's one idea suggested by a fan. Yeah, I know that the fan suggested it to me, too. (laughs) Second idea. (laughs) is that we do an episode about brain chemistry and the evolution of brains. I'm going to go with Maryland. Yeah. I don't know anything about brains. That's why you do research, Aaron. <laughs> yeah, but like at least in everything we talk about, I have like a general background in or I understand the basics of it. <sighs> okay, I guess. All right. So Maryland it is. Or are we doing just something that happened in Maryland? Animals from Maryland? Just Maryland. Just has to take place in Maryland? Yeah, exactly. All right. Sound good to you? Yeah, I can vibe with that. I think I got something cooking already. All right. Sounds good. Why don't you take us out and give people all the information they need to follow the show? If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving us a follow and a rating on your podcast app of choice. If you have a suggestion for an episode... You can email us at theprimordialsouppot at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at the Soup Pot Podcast. All right. Sounds good. Until next time, I'm Rustin Perret. Now I'm Aaron Johnson. And we'll be back talking to you about all kinds of Maryland stuff. Get out of here. Go home.